Welcome to Quantum Magazine's podcast. Each episode, we bring you stories about developments in science and mathematics. I'm Susan Vallett. Our brain encodes memories as either positive or negative. And it turns out that a single molecule determines which way they'll go. That's next. Quantum Magazine is an editorially independent online publication supported by the Simons Foundation to enhance public understanding of science. Imagine you're on a vacation of a lifetime in Kenya, traversing the savanna on safari. The tour guide points out elephants to your right and lions to your left. It's amazing! Years later, you walk into a florist's shop in your hometown and smell something like the flowers on the jackalberry trees that dotted the landscape. When you close your eyes, the store disappears and you're back in the Land Rover. Inhaling deeply, you smile at the happy memory. Now let's rewind a minute. Imagine you're on the vacation of a lifetime in Kenya, traversing the savanna on safari. The tour guide points out elephants to your right and lions to your left. From the corner of your eye, you notice a rhino trailing the vehicle. Suddenly, it sprints toward you, and the tour guide yells at the driver to hit the gas. You panic. Your adrenaline spikes. You think you're going to die. Years later, when you walk into that florist shop, the sweet floral scent makes you shudder. Hao Li is a postdoctoral researcher at the Salk Institute for Biological Studies in California. Your brain is essentially associating the smell with the positive or negative valence. Those feelings aren't just linked to the memory. They're part of it. The brain assigns an emotional valence to information as it encodes it, locking in experiences as good or bad memories. We now know how the brain does it. As Lee and his team reported recently in Nature, the difference between memories that conjure up a smile and those that elicit a shudder is established by a small peptide molecule known as neurotensin. They found that as the brain judges new experiences in the moment, neurons adjust their release of neurotensin, and that shift sends the incoming information down different neural pathways to be encoded as either positive or negative memories. The discovery suggests that in its creation of memories, the brain may be biased toward remembering things fearfully. It's an evolutionary quirk that may have developed to keep our ancestors cautious. Tomas Ryan is a neuroscientist at Trinity College Dublin who wasn't involved in the study. I think future research will determine whether or not the actual background state or the basal state for the circuitry balance, whether that differs between, not just with different species, but different individuals who have different life experiences, different levels of stress or deprivation or enrichment, how that actually modulates the normal homeostatic set point of the circuitry. But notwithstanding that caveat or rather point of caution, I think that this does give us significant insights into how we deal with conflicting emotions. This study has really challenged my own thinking Mm -hmm. in how far we can push a molecular understanding of circuitry. This also opens opportunities to probe the biological underpinnings of neuropsychiatric conditions that may sometimes arise when the mechanism breaks down. 
Here's Lee again. We know that our mood fluctuates every day, like all the time, within the certain range. But when it's outside the certain range of positive-negative mood, it will become pathological. Where we see, you know, addiction, which have too much positive processing, or depression, or anxiety, or PTSD, which have too much negative processing. Previously, we have known that in the beta lateral amygdala, we have identified these two populations of cells that can either encode reward or punishment, so either positive or negative valence. So we know that in the amygdala, there's already sort of 12-way role that one goes to reward, one goes to punishment. But what we were not known is how these two pathways were developed in this way. In theory, targeting the mechanism through novel drugs could be an avenue to treatment. Wynne Lee is an associate professor at Florida State University who studies the biology of anxiety disorders and wasn't involved in the study. This is really an extraordinary study, very sophisticated, very comprehensive. Wen Lee says the study will have a profound impact on psychiatric concepts about fear and anxiety. Neuroscientists are still far from understanding exactly how our brains encode and remember memories, or forget them for that matter. Still, valence assignment is seen as an essential part of the process for forming emotionally charged memories. The ability of the brain to record environmental cues and experiences as good or bad memories is critical for survival. If eating a berry makes us very sick, we instinctively avoid that berry or anything that looks like it. If eating a berry brings delicious satisfaction, we may seek out more. Here's how Lee. To be able to question whether to approach or avoid a stimuli or an object, you have to know whether this thing is good or bad. That's why it's important to assign a value to this stimuli before we expect any actions so we know that good and bad. Memories that link disparate ideas like berry and sickness or enjoyment are called associative memories, and they're often emotionally charged. They form in a tiny almond-shaped region of the brain called the amygdala. Though traditionally known as the brain's fear center, the amygdala responds to pleasure and other emotions too. One part of the amygdala, called the basolateral complex, associates stimuli in the environment with positive or negative outcomes. But it wasn't clear how it does that until a few years ago. That's when a group at MIT, led by neuroscientist Kay Tai, discovered something remarkable happening in the basolateral amygdala of mice, which they reported in Nature in 2015 and in Neuron in 2016. Tai and her team peered into the basolateral amygdala of mice, learning to associate a sound with either sugar water or a mild electric shock. They found that, in each case, connections to a different group of neurons strengthened. When the researchers later played the sound for the mice, the neurons that had been strengthened by the learned reward or punishment became more active, demonstrating their involvement in the associated memory. But Tai's team couldn't tell what was steering the information toward the right group of neurons, what acted as the switch operator. Dopamine, a neurotransmitter known to be important in reward and punishment learning, was the obvious answer. But a 2019 study showed that although this feel-good molecule could encode emotion in memories, it couldn't assign the emotion a positive or negative value. 
So the team began looking at the genes expressed in the two areas where positive and negative memories were forming. The results turned their attention to neuropeptides, small multifunctional proteins that can slowly and steadily strengthen synaptic connections between neurons. They found that one set of amygdala neurons had more receptors for neurotensin than the other. This finding was encouraging because earlier work had shown that neurotensin, a meager molecule just 13 amino acids long, is involved in the processing of reward and punishment, including the fear response. Tai's team set out to learn what would happen if they changed the amount of neurotensin in the brains of mice. What followed were years of surgically and genetically manipulating mouse neurons and recording the behaviors that resulted. Praneeth Namburi, an author on both of the papers and the leader of the 2015 one, says by the time he finished his PhD, he'd done at least 1,000 surgeries. During that time, Tai moved her growing lab across the country from MIT to the Salk Institute in California. Namburi stayed at MIT. He now studies how dancers and athletes represent emotions in their movements and how Lee joined Tai's lab as a postdoc, working from Namburi's notes. So then I started to pick up this project and then carry the project to the finish line. But the project was stalled further by the pandemic. Still, Hao Lee kept it going by requesting essential personnel status and basically moving into the lab, sometimes even sleeping there. The researchers knew that the neurons in the amygdala did not make neurotensin, so they first had to figure out where the peptide was coming from. When they scanned the brain, they found neurons in the thalamus that produced a lot of neurotensin and poked their long axons into the amygdala. Tai's team then taught mice to associate a tone with either a treat in the form of sucrose or a shock. Then, based on their interpretation of the tone, they can have a different behavioral response. When they hear the tone that predicted reward, they would run to the sucrose port to collect the reward. And when they hear the tone that predicts shock, they will either stay freezing or try run around to escape shock. So essentially, we observe these different behavior readouts and see how much animal has learned and what do these cute mean to them. They found that neurotensin levels increased in the amygdala after reward learning and dropped after punishment learning. By genetically altering the mice's thalamic neurons, they were able to control how and when the neurons released neurotensin. Activating the neurons that released neurotensin into the amygdala promoted reward learning, while knocking out the neurotensin genes strengthened punishment learning. They also discovered that the assignment of valences to environmental cues promotes active behavioral responses to them. When the researchers prevented the amygdala from receiving information about positive or negative valence by knocking out the thalamic neurons, the mice were slower to collect rewards. In threatening situations, the mice froze rather than running away. Here's how Lee again. It was pretty expressive initially because we all know that memory encoding or learning is such complex processing. So we were pretty surprised that at the beginning, when we just manipulate neurotensin, we can get a very dramatic behavior response in both positive and negative learning. So in both yeah. ways. So it was pretty, pretty striking to us that this thing actually 
could be the one that drives good or bad memories. So, what do these results suggest would happen if your valence assignment system broke down while an angry rhino was charging you, for example? Ty says you would only just slightly care. Your indifference in the moment would be recorded in the memory, and she says if you found yourself in a similar situation later in life, your memory wouldn't inspire you to try to urgently escape. However, the likelihood that an entire brain circuit would shut down is low, says Jeffrey Tasker, a professor in the Brain Institute at Tulane University. It's rare that you have something that's just totally offline. You might have a mutation that makes it suboptimal; it, it performs suboptimally, but to actually take it out of the equation is rare. So I would be hard pressed to see a situation where somebody would. Mistake a charging tiger for a love approach. How Lee agrees and notes that the brain likely has fallback mechanisms that would kick in to reinforce rewards and punishments, even if the primary valence system failed. He points out this would be an interesting question to pursue in future work. Tasker says one way to study defects in the valence system might be to examine the very rare people who don't report feeling fear, even in situations routinely judged as terrifying. Various uncommon conditions and injuries can have this effect. Wynne Lee of Florida State University says the fear circuit is very complicated, but these findings do clarify some things. This provides further support that the amygdala. It's not just this exclusive center; rather, it actually receives input and kind of receives order in that way, right? Command, okay, so you should go in this way, left and right, right? That's really pretty big in terms of advancing our understanding and thinking of the fear circuit and the role of the amygdala. Winley says we're learning more about chemicals like neurotensin that are less well known than dopamine, but play critical roles in the brain. Howley says the work points toward the possibility that the brain is pessimistic by default. The brain has to make and release neurotensin to learn about rewards. Learning about punishments takes less work. Further evidence of this bias comes from the reaction of the mice when they were first put into learning situations. Before they knew whether the new associations would be positive or negative, the release of neurotensin from their thalamic neurons decreased. The researchers speculate that new stimuli are assigned a more negative valence automatically until their context is more certain and can redeem them. You remember Howley? If you think from the evolutionary perspective, if you see a tiger coming at you, if you don't run, you're dead. But If you're hungry for a couple of days, you're probably okay. You know, you can just find some other things to eat. You will survive. So I think it's still the same right now. Like you're more responsive to negative experiences versus positive experience. If you almost got hit by a car, you will remember this for a very long time. But if you eat something very delicious after a couple of days, you'll be like,、oh, okay. So by default, the brain is strongly activated. To aversive stimuli or punishment. Neuroscientist Tomas Ryan is more wary of extending such interpretations to humans. I would be cautious on such interpretations, mainly just because we're dealing with laboratory mice who are brought up in very impoverished environments and have very particular genetic backgrounds. 
So we should be very careful about positing what the blank state is here. Still, he says it would be interesting to determine in future experiments whether fear is the actual default state of the human brain, and if that varies for different species, or even for individuals with different life experiences and stress levels. Wen Lee says the findings are also a great example of how integrated the brain is. The amygdala needs the thalamus, and the thalamus likely needs signals from elsewhere. She says it would be interesting to know which neurons in the brain are feeding signals to the thalamus. A recent study published in Nature Communications found that a single fear memory can be encoded in more than one region of the brain. Which circuits are involved probably depends on the memory. For example, neurotensin is probably less crucial for encoding memories that don't have much emotion attached to them, such as the declarative memories that form when you learn vocabulary. For Tasker, the clear-cut relationship that Tai's study found between a single molecule, a function, and a behavior was very impressive. One of the remarkable things about the brain is that the circuits are distributed. So it's rare to find a one-to-one -one relationship between like a signal and a behavior or a circuit and a function. It's usually distributed circuits that are critical circuits, and obviously this appears to be a critical circuit. The crispness of the roles of neurotensin and the thalamic neurons in assigning valence might make them ideal targets for drugs aimed at treating neuropsychiatric disorders. How Lee says in theory, if you can fix the valence assignment, you might be able to treat the disease. It's not clear whether therapeutic drugs targeting neurotensin could change the valence of an already formed memory. But Praneeth Namburi says that's the hope. Pharmacologically, this won't be easy. Here's Tasker again. Peptides are notoriously difficult to work with pharmacologically because they don't cross the blood-brain barrier. That blood-brain barrier insulates the brain against foreign materials and fluctuations in blood chemistry. I think it's going to be difficult to design a pharmacology or a pharmacotherapy targeting neurotensin receptors. So it's going to be challenging, but that's where the field is going to get some of these more targeted drugs. Our understanding of how the brain assigns valence still has important gaps. It's not clear, for example, which receptors the neurotensin is binding to in amygdala neurons to flip the valence switch. How Lee says too much is also still unknown about how problematic valence assignments may drive anxiety, addiction, or depression. Hao Li was recently appointed as an assistant professor at Northwestern University and is planning to explore some of these questions further in his new lab. Beyond neurotensin, Hao Li says there are many other neuropeptides in the brain that are potential targets for interventions. We just don't know what they all do. He's also curious to know how the brain would react to a more ambiguous situation in which it wasn't clear whether the experience was good or bad. The questions linger in Hao Li's brain long after he packs up and goes home for the night. Now that he knows which network of chatty cells in his brain drives the emotions he feels, he jokes with friends about his brain pumping out neurotensin or holding it back in response to every bit of good or bad news. It's clear that it's biology. It happens to everyone. It's not just something that's happened to me. 
the thought that these things happening to everyone makes me feel better when I'm in a bad mood. Matt Carlstrom helped with this episode. I'm Susan Vallett. For more on this story, read Yasmin Saplakoglu's full article, A Good Memory or Bad One? One Brain Molecule Decides, on our website, quantamagazine.org. Explore math mysteries in the quanta book, The Prime Number Conspiracy, published by the MIT Press. Available now at Amazon.com, BarnesandNoble.com, or your local bookstore. Also, make sure to tell your friends about the Quanta Magazine Science Podcast and give us a positive review or follow where you listen. It helps people find this podcast. <laughs>